all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Hello, Mississippi. You're listening to another version this week's Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, your host, and we're waiting for your calls at one 877 MPB ring. That's one 672 It's all things considered today with my special guest, emergency medicine physician and uh, vivant, bon vivant, who's been here before, Dr. Bob Galley from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. So get your calls ready and give us one. The lines are open. We're at one 672 7464 Back right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The presidential candidates are looking to one-up each other, exchanging insults and accusations in a bid to discredit the other ahead of November's general election. During an appearance at his hotel in New York's Soho neighborhood, Republican Donald Trump accused Democrat Hillary Clinton of being a world-class liar and a die-hard member of the political establishment. He then appealed to Bernie Sanders supporters to switch sides. The insiders wrote the rules of the game to keep themselves in power and in the money. That's why we're asking Bernie Sanders voters to join our movement so together we can fix the system for all Americans so important. Meanwhile, Republican Florida Senator Marco Rubio is running for re-election. More on this from NPR's Greg Allen. Rubio's decision reverses a pledge that he would not seek re-election to the U.S. Senate. Since dropping out of the presidential race, he's been pressured by Republican leaders to reconsider that decision. In a statement, Rubio said he's decided to seek a second Senate term because of the prospect of either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump in the White House. If Trump's elected, Rubio said, the Senate will need members who will, quote, if necessary, stand up to him. Greg Allen reporting. Excessive heat warnings are in effect for much of the southwestern U.S. through tomorrow. NPR's Kirk Sigler reports the heat is posing extra challenges for crews battling wildfires in the region. Right now is the typical peak of the wildfire season in the southwest before the monsoon rains tend to arrive in July and cool things off a little. But there have been multiple years of severe drought in the region and fuels are extraordinarily dry, so fire managers are bracing for the worst. Fast-moving fires have forced hundreds to evacuate their homes with little warning from New Mexico to southern Utah and Arizona. In southern California, where the wildfires seasons now tend to be year-round. The heat is abating some, but in the Angeles National Forest, crews are struggling to even contain two wildfires threatening scores of homes and other infrastructure. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. More than 1,200 business leaders are urging citizens in the U.K. to vote to stay in the EU in tomorrow's landmark referendum. NPR's Frank Langfitt has details. In a letter to the Times, the business leaders said walking away from the 28-nation trading bloc would hurt workers and companies here. Adam Posen, president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, has been following the debate from Washington. 
He says a Brexit will only create more economic uncertainty. Unwillingness of companies to invest in the future, they just sit on cash or give cash back to shareholders, is sort of draped over the entire world economy. So it is something that can rattle not just financial markets, but more importantly, real investment decisions by thousands of companies. Those who want to leave the EU say it's terribly cumbersome and already deeply troubled economically. They see the United Kingdom as better off on its own. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. This is NPR. About 30 House Democrats are currently staging a sit-in on the House floor to protest inaction on gun legislation. It's led by Democratic Representative John Lewis of Georgia as well as Democratic Representative James Clyburn of South Carolina. Lawmakers are grouped in the well of the chamber and in chairs in the front row. Some members are sitting on the floor of the House. The House is scheduled to gavel back in at this hour. Former Speaker of the House Dennis Hastert is due to report to a federal prison in Minnesota today to begin serving a 15-month sentence. The longest-serving Republican Speaker pleaded guilty this spring in a hush money case. NPR's David Shaper reports he also admitted trying to cover up his sexual abuse of teenage boys decades ago. Once he was second in line to the presidency, now Dennis Hassert will be known as federal inmate number 74991-424. He will be incarcerated in the Rochester, Minnesota Federal Medical Center, which specializes in treating seriously ill inmates. Hassert suffered a near-fatal blood infection and a stroke after being indicted last year, and the 74-year-old remains in poor health. He pleaded guilty to illegally structured bank withdrawals. The former Illinois congressman tried to pay millions in hush money to one of five men that Hastert now admits he sexually abused when he was their high school wrestling coach in the late 1960s and 70s. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. Nissan is recalling 60,000 Infiniti luxury sedans worldwide after learning that the electronic steering on some of the vehicles may encounter problems. Roughly half of the affected vehicles are in the United States. The Dow is up 18 points. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the financial services firm of Raymond James, offering personalized wealth management advice and banking and capital markets expertise, all with a commitment to putting clients' financial well-being first. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is the original Southern Remedy where the doctors are always in. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, here with my special guest, Dr. Bob Galley, who is professor of emergency medicine and is also an internal medicine specialist, so he's got lots and lots of training and years of experience. He's taken care of a bunch of my relatives who've gotten sick over the years, and I just love him to death. So it's good to have you with us, Bob. Thank you. And uh, we're going to talk about whatever's on your mind, toenail fungus, whatever it is. So give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 7464 
But we've got, uh, since we've got Bob here, we have an opportunity to talk about some uh, news. And one of the news items that I was most interested in was what was going on with this botulism uh, epidemic. And I know that a lot of those patients have come to uh, our hospital and other hospitals in the state. So what? how do you get, what is botulism and how do you get it? Well, the actual clinical syndrome comes from a toxin that is made by a bacterium called Clostridia botulinum, which is pretty well everywhere in the dirt. It's anaerobic, which means it doesn't grow if there's an awful lot of oxygen around. But if you manage to have it in a controlled environment with very little, it'll multiply, and what it does, it makes the toxin. And if we then ingest the toxin or somehow utilize it and get it in our system, it paralyzes you. Basically, that's how Botox works. Oh, really? It's the same stuff? It's the same stuff, except you just inject that locally, as opposed to what happened to our federal prisoners uh, who made their hooch. Yeah. Okay, so there's this, what you said is there, let me just make sure we all have this straight. There's a a bacteria that grows in the dirt and is just about everywhere. And if you get hold of that bacteria some way uh, and put it in a low oxygen environment, it can grow real fast and produce this poison which is called botulism poison, I guess, mm-hmm. or Botox. And uh, and when you ingest it, it can make you sick. So the Botox is the, is the dermatological that is used to get rid of wrinkles. And uh, when that gets done as a treatment, typically it lasts for a couple of months, and it paralyzes the muscles where the wrinkles are, which kind of smooths out the complexion. Similarly, the same toxin, when it gets ingested, will affect muscles as well, except now it's in the systemic circulation, and so it far more broadly takes effect. What actually happened was the chef, who was making the hooch, had a big black plastic bag. He uh, took honey, he took uh, potatoes, tomato sauce, apple juice, and water, made three gallons of it, tied up the bag, put it in the closet, and got the air out of it, and so now, in honey, you find botulism, which is why it's really not recommended for children under the age of one, because they, their system doesn't tolerate it that well, and that's called infant botulism. Um, but putting this in the closet for three days, it just kind of allowed the bacterium to, to spread. go crazy. And mm-hmm. sure enough, uh, anybody who drank about a quart of this stuff wound up having significant symptoms. So through the poison center, we're managing these cases in all the hospitals. There were 20 of them total. You can give them the antiserum. The antiserum comes from the CDC, and CDC is very interested in this because you can use botulinum toxin as uh, basically a significant terror um, weapon. Whoa, whoa. You're listening to Dr. Robert Galley. On Southern Remedy, we're taking your calls today at one eight seven seven MPB ring, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. It's open not mic. Anything you want to talk about, botulism, Botox, or any other issue, uh, this is a good day to do it because we've got an emergency medicine specialist here with us, and uh, we've got pretty much the bases covered. So give us a call. We're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Last week, the light. Uh, everybody called in the last 20 minutes and, and we did not get to all of our callers. So if you have a question, this is a good time to call. So they made this stuff up in a garbage bag 
and then poured it out and let people drink it. And they got this toxin in their body. And so how did they show up at the emergency room or wherever they showed up? What were their complaints? Well, they first presented to the prison doc. Um, and he's done yeoman's work with managing these folks. There are probably several others that didn't drink all that much of it that they're following up there. But in particular, it, it, it deals with cranial nerves first. And so all of the stuff around your face, you have your eyelids droop, you get double vision because you can't move your eye muscles all that well, can't swallow all that well. And so many of them are having significant difficulty in requiring NG tubes in order to be able to give them some kind of liquid mush to be yeah, able so to Yeah, so in a nasogastric them. tube, you feed some feeding tubes. It's basically feeding yeah. tubes. And I think they're probably going to need peg tubes because they can't leave those in for two months. Mm-hmm. And so we're having speech therapists come in to see what their muscles of swallowing are like and how, uh, how severely they're affected. But then it can also deal with your respiratory muscles. And so they stop breathing. Uh, they don't have enough inspiratory force. It's called the NIF, which is a negative inspiratory pressure. Normally, it's about minus 50 or 60. These guys are under minus 10, mm-hmm. so they can't take a breath. Okay. And so they, need to, be on a, they mm-hmm. need to be on a ventilator and may well need to be on a ventilator for a couple of months. Okay, so that's a reason not to make homebrew unless you know what you're doing because you could kill yourself. And that's what's ha- Have you all saved all of these people? No one has died so far, fortunately, although the anti-serum is $80,000 a dose. Oh, goodness. And how many doses does it take per patient? Just one is all you give them, fortunately. You've had 20 but it's, it's already been $1.7 or $8 million just in the anti-serum. Oh, goodness. And that's what the CDC provides, but they charge you for it. Oh, well, the prison system's being charged, so it's your tax dollars at oh, work. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Well, we're listening for your call at one eight seven seven mpb ring I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. Bob Galley. And it's all things considered. Let's go to Frank and Jackson. Hey, Frank. Hello. What's happening? Uh, I'm in um, reasonably good health, but I'm worried about the state's finances. Yeah. What has been the effect of the state of Mississippi not expanding Medicaid? Have people died, or are we just spending more money than we should spend? Okay, so that is both a political and a medical question, and this is a medical show, and because I don't want anybody putting bombs under my car, I'm going to stay away from the politics as much as possible and give you the facts. We have an unknown number of people, uh, mostly adults, who have no health insurance in the state, and the expansion uh, of Medicaid would have provided health insurance for those people and their ability to get a primary care doctor, which would keep them out of emergency rooms. And the numbers, uh, you know, what do you believe? Uh, There are many thousands of these people in our state. And because we chose not to participate uh, in this program, uh, these people show up in emergency rooms. That's exactly right. And we certainly are seeing the census go up. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, if you have a business, let's just say you're a Midas muffler guy and you change mufflers out, uh, we find that 60% of the patients who come to our emergency department have no funds to pay. So if you had a muffler shop and 60% of your people got a muffler, but didn't pay, you'd have a hard time making ends meet. And so 
that makes things difficult. So for the the state to con, to be for able to the emergency room to yeah. stay open, right? So if, if and we not, have hospitals yep. throughout the state that have lost certain federal payments that they mm-hmm. used to get that right. are going under. We have a number of hospitals now that are near. You work with these yeah, hospitals. It's particularly difficult for the small rural hospitals. And so we try to keep critical access hospitals, which get special funding rights to be able to uh, keep their doors open. But unfortunately, this year we've seen four or five close their doors. Yeah. So, Frank, uh, as physicians, uh, we are seeing, still seeing lots of people who don't have health insurance that could have had it. And we know that when people wait to go to the emergency room for health issues, those issues cost more to handle than they would have they've been picked up earlier. And so you have somebody here in Dr. Uh, Galley who is not only an internal medicine specialist who, who was trained to take care of problems before they get out of control and also uh, someone who takes care of them when they do got to get out of control. I think so the sad, am I, did, the did I say that right, yeah, that I it's the, cheaper and better to, you know, take care of problems before they blow up? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we are way behind in an awful lot of healthcare parameters relative to other countries. Um, we can talk about what the healthcare system is like, but unless you can provide that primary care at the outset to prevent conditions from getting worse, then they wind up in my shop Pretty darn sick. So from our perspective as uh, a, as physicians, with a very favorable match that we have, the federal government pays for all of it, all the expansion for the first year, and uh, even if they didn't pay for it, we'd still have an, uh, a, a wonderful match. The, actually, the, the programs, the Medicaid programs, cost the state a little bit of money, but the downstream revenue is a huge economic plus for the state, and for some reason... Uh, the legislature did not want to do this. So from a physician standpoint, it certainly hurt patients. So there you go. Originally established, it was going to be 100% federal funding for the first three years and then 90% thereafter. Yeah, and we lost it. Okay, let's go to Robin in Hattiesburg. Hey, Robin. Morning, how are you? We're better since you called. What's happening in a very nice city, Hattiesburg? Oh, Hattiesburg's great today. Um complete change of pace from what we've been talking about, but a couple of years ago, I started having problems with a sense of dizziness or imbalance, and I went to my doctor, and it was treated very conservatively for about a year, and then I was referred to an audiologist and went through a series of testing with lights flickering on the page and blowing hot and cold air in my ears and and that sort of thing, and I was eventually diagnosed with a condition called BVH which is bilateral vestibular hypoactivity. That's a mouthful. And I am told that there's very little treatment for that, except potentially for um, going through physical therapy. But this is what I don't understand. On some days, the balance problems are, I would say, severe. Some days they're moderate, and some days they're almost non-existent. If this is a degenerative-type condition, I don't understand why I have such variability in the symptoms of it from day to day. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, I wouldn't give Bob that uh, your question because I like him too much uh, <laughs> because uh, that that is a real challenging one. Have you seen an otologist as well as an audiologist? 
No. Okay, well, that's the answer. Let me, let me tell you why. Okay. Um, the, the otology, the, the otologists are ear, ear, nose, and throat doctors who have uh, special training in the electrophysiology of the ear, which is very complicated. It's hooked up to your brain. And they work very closely with those companies that develop technology to deal with problems like yours. And there are all of these kinds of new technologies that are available. There's electronic stimulators, nerve stimulators, counter noise, counter balance, all kinds of stuff being developed. And actually, we have good otologists. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the state, but we have excellent private and uh, university otologists who deal with exactly your problem. And uh, you you have to have someone who understands what the otologist has found in his diagnostic testing to know which of these devices or medical treatments or other things, physical therapy, are effective. So my suggestion to you uh, is find a board-certified otologist uh, and uh, take that information, have him or her talk to that um otologist and figure out uh what can be done and i know there the answer is not nothing so that would be my recommendation i hope that's helpful to you it it is very helpful uh do we have otologists at university medical center yes we do we have one of the best in the country and all you have to do is dial the umc general number and uh you know that's that's a way to get hold of that person. And there is also, uh, they will also give you, if you're not in the area, uh, a list of people who are uh, in your area. So that would just call the university appointment number and uh, we'll go from there. Do and you have I to have hope, a referral? Uh, you don't have to have a referral. No, okay. you do not have right. to have a referral. Okay. I'll just tell them you sent me that. That'll work. All right, good to talk to you, and, right, and get back with me if that doesn't get your needs met, okay? Okay, thank you very much. All right, where are we going to our next call? Let's go to let's go to Jackson and Lisa. Hey, Lisa. Good morning. How are you guys? We're good. What's your question? This, guy, uh, this question is for Dr. Galley. Mm-hmm. How are you interested in snakes? Uh, well, I'm a medical toxicologist, and I have dealt with kind of the natural toxins more than anything else, the venoms. And uh, to date, I have cared for 1,792 snake victims. And you're listening to Dr. Bob Galley, emergency medicine physician at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven mpb ring You're listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. And we have two lines open. Why in the world did okay. she just, she must know you in some way because I've had you up here before and you've wow. talked about snakes Man, every, sure. every time that uh, you come up here. And uh, let me tell you, I stepped on one this week and uh, out in my backyard. And you know what I thought of? I didn't think of how much it was going to hurt. I thought of, I hope Bob Galley's working today. <laughs> So what's the deal with snakes here? We have pit vipers. What are those? Okay, so the venomous snakes are of two significant varieties. They're Kistridon, uh, not Crotalus, Crotalus, never mind that. They're the rattlesnakes 
and there are the not rattlesnakes, but they're still venomous. So which ones are the rattlesnakes? The rattlesnakes are the ones that can make the noise and shake the end so of their are tail. Are those water moccasins or those rattlesnakes? The water moccasins and the copperheads are not rattlesnakes, as it turns out. And, and as it turns out, um, uh, there are two medical toxicologists for the state, myself and Bob Cox, who's the medical director for the Poison Center. What we recommend is if anybody in the state is envenomated, bitten by a snake, they go to their nearest healthcare facility and ask them to call the poison center because many physicians don't have experience with snakes like we do. All are pretty most are referred to us, and we see about 100 to 125 a year, and or we help manage them. And as it turns out, 10% are from rattlesnakes, 30% are from cottonmouths, and 60% are from copperheads. Fortunately, Wait a second. Let's go back on that and make okay. sure we have it. So what percent are from these rattlesnakes and what percent are from the non-rattlesnakes? The non-rattlesnakes are 90%. The rattlesnakes are only 10%, fortunately. And I say that because the cottonmouth that everybody says is aggressive and nasty has a venom. That's 30 times weaker than a rattlesnake. And that's the water moccasin is the cottonmouth. That's correct. And oh. the copperhead, has a ven- which is 60% of the bites, has a venom that is 50 times less powerful than a rattlesnake. So oftentimes when people go to the hospital, we just watch them because the venom is just not potent enough to cause any significant damage. And you told me something, the, told us uh, listeners something the last time you were on here, and you're listening to Dr. Bob Galley, emergency medicine specialist. It's all things considered all, at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four southern remedy you told us the last time you were here and we talked about snakes that snakes don't necessarily squirt venom in you when they bite you and i didn't know that and the other thing you told us two things i learned from you i just want to let you know that uh i still remember a little bit of what you said the last time you were here is that um uh you don't need to put give people everybody any venom which has its own set of problems right correct as we know snakes don't have an awful lot going for them they don't have arms and they don't have legs their vision is 2200 i have no idea what eye chart they use for that (laughs) (laughs) they have no ears they have a three-chambered heart they have one lung that runs down their entire body except for having two penises they don't have an awful lot however (laughs) they do have and they're called pit vipers for a reason they have a pit between their eyes and their nostrils that's a temperature sensing device so it can tell then if you can't see you all that well it knows that you may be the, the throw off the heat of a mouse or more heat of a rat more heat of a rabbit or more heat of a dog and so it knows what size you are it then has this forked tongue that comes out that picks up molecules of scent and brings it in and in its upper palate there are two holes in which are the organs of jacobson it can now taste what you are so now it knows what you are and how big you are. Wow. And if it has the time to calculate it, can calculate two to three times the venom that it needs to kill that prey. Generally what happens, and if you play golf like I do, you're in the rough most of the time. And if you don't bring your five iron with you, then you reach down for the ball and there's a snake and you scare it just as much as it scares you. And it's just going to do a quick whap strike and it doesn't have the time to calculate that. And so up to 40% of the time, it's a dry strike. Mm. No it's a venom protective strike. They, exactly. They right. don't really want to eat you. They yeah. just want to protect want to themselves. Scare mm. you away. They don't wake up each morning saying, I'm going to kill a human today. It's too big. Yeah. 
So uh, the best thing to do is leave them alone. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. So if you if you come up on a rattlesnake, what are you supposed to do? Just stand there, or turn around and walk off, or what? Uh, is... Best thing is just walk away. Step back as quickly as you possibly okay, can. Okay. Now, what about these uh, copper, uh, these uh, water moccasins? They actually climb up into the ceilings of marinas and climb up into boats and people open their boats and they're there. What are you supposed yeah, to do? Yeah, and then people are fishing and so they'll go under the trees along the along the um, the shore and they'll just kind of drop down. Um, so what do you do? I, well, I, I, Besides I recommend, pray, I recommend loud and you long. don't do what one guy did, which was to take his shotgun out and shoot the snake in the bottom of his boat. <laughs> <laughs> that actually happened. That actually happened. Yeah. We treated him for drowning. <laughs> yeah. So what do you do? Do you just stay still? Or? Just try to get away from him as much as you possibly can. You just sort of withdraw to one end of the boat? Yeah, certainly. Do you try to get him out of the boat with your oars? or what? Yeah. I mean, any way that you can avoid them, obviously, that's a bad place to be. There's no question about it. But um, more likely, though, it's going to be on land. Um, and what we find is people walking along the shore that get hit an awful lot. It becomes a bit more dangerous, and I hate to bring up the alligator story with the two-year-old, but, mm. but sure enough, kids do get an awful lot of envenomations. And, and we wind up seeing a lot of those because the relative amount of venom that's in a child, a small child, relative to a large uh, adult, is going to spread up their arm or their leg relatively quickly, and so they're more likely to get the antivenin. And the usual starting dose is anywhere between thirty and $40,000. Wow. So you need to, A, uh, know when somebody is bitten. Do you need to catch the snake? Please, no. Okay. Uh, do you need to take an iPhone picture of the snake? Please, no. Okay. Do you need to put a tourniquet or suck the blood out of the wound? We definitely recommend that the only first aid you use is a set of car keys. Okay. Get to your nearest hospital as quickly as you can. Do you Try need to, to drive going. 150 miles an hour to your nearest no, hospital? Absolutely not. There. Um, what, what we find in terms of the really serious ones, and we get a death maybe once every five to ten years, and usually that's when someone is unfortunate enough to get the venom directly in a superficial vein. And so now you've got an intravenous envenomation. They typically don't make it out of the driveway. Um, so if, you're, if you just get something in your foot, uh, you can just hobble your way to the hospital and have them contact the poison center. Because chances are you're not even going to need antivenin. It's just going to be observation. Boy, that's that's good to hear. You're listening to Dr. Bob Galley, who wants to talk about Tylenol or all kinds of other medication problems. If you want to give him a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring, that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're talking with emergency medicine specialist, ambulance coordinator for the state, and who is also a toxicologist. He knows it all. Give him a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring We have two lines open, and we're going to DeSoto County. Hey, Susan. Yes, hello. Thanks for your call. What's happening? Well, um, I have a question for Dr. Galley. Uh, I was exposed to um, toxic chemicals in my workplace, mostly volatile organic compounds, and I w- want to know about inspiratory pressure. What cranial nerve controls it? Is that at the 11th nerve, the vagus, or some other cranial nerve? 
because as I've gotten older, I'm finding it harder and harder to um, inhale. Okay. All right. That's a good question. And you, you brought this up and triggered this thing when you talked about the ability to suck in, which is important in order to take oxygen in to breathe out to exchange oxygen in your blood to get a blood oxygen level to keep you alive. So that's, I think, where Susan's coming from. Uh, and this is sort of a complicated question. Yeah, Vegas is 10, by the way, and and it really controls your intestines as well as uh, your the vascular pressure rather than your inspiratory pressure. Breathing is a complex uh, set of respiratory and accessory muscles, um, and when you now are exposed to some kind of organics that are doing this, then the pressure that I was talking about has to be measured by a respiratory therapist and then managed by a pulmonologist. Oftentimes, if there is a specific association with toxic chemicals, then a medical toxicologist can be involved. And we do have a clinic at university that can deal with that. So you have a medical toxicology clinic. Yeah, and that would be mostly Dr. Cox. Yeah, but most of these are acute injuries without a lot of long-term, these toxic inhalations of chemicals like from uh, Bogalusa where they had all those trains turn over years ago and and some of these other things. Now, um, one of the things that I know that you're consulted on that's pertinent to what Susan was talking about is spills. And, and we have had a lot of these lately. If you are driving along... If you are a worker, uh, aren't you supposed to know what, if you're an employed worker around toxic chemicals, doesn't the, the people, don't the people who, uh, for whom you work have a duty to let you know about these chemicals and how to deal with a spill if it occurs? Yes, theoretically or legally, they are supposed to contact us. If they are coming through in particular with something unusual, if you look at the side of any of these tanker trucks, they have that kind of circular thing with a bunch of triangles in it and some numbers, and that identifies the exact chemical that they are carrying so that should there be a spill and the first responders come, uh, they're able to see those numbers, look them up, and know specifically what they're dealing with if the driver is not able to communicate with them. Um, But in particular, um, if there is something unusual that's coming through a large metropolitan area, they are obliged to contact us and let us know what it is and when they're going to be coming through. And it's uh, it's also helpful, I, I think I've heard you say, because you had a lot to do with setting up this whole system of poison control. Uh, there are these MSDH sheets or something. That, what, what is that that, that you have in all these kinds of things that – if you are working with something and you think you have been intoxicated, you ought to bring that sheet with you or something. What is that? That's also a requirement in any workplace that um, that they, they have these available. It gives a wealth of information about the chemicals that you may be exposed to. Is, did I have the right MSD? What, 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 you That's pretty close. I, uh, I guess I'm close enough. Okay, terrible uh, with those uh, things anyway. Uh, One thing, though, to get back to, to Susan's issue is that you're correct. The concern we have is the immediate intoxication from the inhalation, but the long-term issues would be fibrosis and maybe some... some Lung uh, fibrosis. T- yes, correct. And so yeah. for that, again, the pulmonologist. So she's having breathing issues. She needs to connect with a board-certified pulmonologist. There you go. Okay, thank you for that call, Susan. We're going to take a very, very brief 
um, break here. Then we're going to go to New Orleans and Ridgeland and Jackson and your house. We have an open line. We're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four with our special guest, uh, internist and uh, emergency medicine physician Bob Galley is our guest today, and we'll talk about whatever you want to. Be right back. Support for MPB comes from the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama at Children's of Alabama, a cardiovascular care center for children in Birmingham, Alabama. More at childrensal.org slash heart. On Creature Comforts, we talk about Mississippi's abundant wildlife with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science and a special guest each week. Also, Dr. Troy Major is on hand to answer questions about your pets. I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us Thursday mornings at 9 with a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6 for Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hey, welcome back to Southern Remedy, your doctor call-in show, five days a week right here at this time on MPB Think Radio. Uh, the program is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and your generous support for the Foundation for Public Broadcasting. Today's program is repeated each Sunday at 6 a.m. What a heck of a way to wake up before going to church uh, on Sundays, just have that thing set you up, and all of a sudden it's hello, Mississippi, waking you up. So uh, if you want to, if for some reason we uh, left something out and you want to think about it again, uh, get replay on Sunday, and we're of course here every Wednesday at eleven with something going on, and something going on this week is Dr. Bob Galley, who's helping me out today, take your questions on open mic. Bob, uh, we're going to go to uh, New Orleans in just a second and go to some other callers who are here um, and uh, try to answer their questions. But I, I understand that there is a crazy habit we have adapted in Mississippi of pouring stuff in bottles and then drinking it. Unfortunately, we've seen a, a few. Um, and I, I really do want to caution people that if you have a container and it's nicely labeled, it, it's for a reason. Um, there are a lot of nasty chemicals that we can purchase very easily. Um, we had a case. That'll kill you. Yeah, there you go. We just had a case recently of, of someone who was working in the shed on a Sunday morning, and somebody else had had some extra paraquat, and they put it in a soda bottle. A paraquat, what does that paraquat do? Paraquat is an herbicide that, you, if you go back far enough, we used it in the war on drugs in South America to try to kill all the marijuana plants. And that contaminated some of those plants and then came to our country and others, and people were smoking it and getting some horrible fibrosis of their lungs and dying really quite quickly even before that. But sure enough, just a mouthful of paraquat is all this gentleman happened to get. And unfortunately, within a week, he was dead. 
Mm. Um, so it had been poured into a Coke bottle or something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, of course, not knowing what it was, he thought it was a Coke. And so he just oh grabbed a swig. And kids will get into that stuff, too, right? Yeah, exactly right. We had another case of someone who was uh, putting antifreeze in their car, and they had this big gallon jug, and they had maybe a quart left. And so he put it in these little white, opaque quart bottles that were all over the house because those are the bottles that his mom's peritoneal dialysis uh, solution comes in. And unfortunately, it was not labeled, and she used that same solution to put into her abdomen, and Lord knows she did not do well. So I, I, I strongly recommend that if you're going to put something in a, in a bottle that it was not designed for, put big labels all over it, store it, keep it away from anybody else so that only you know what's in there uh, so that accidents don't occur. Excellent. Well, we lost Dennert in New Orleans, but Dennert, if you want to send us an email, uh, we have an open line, you can call back, but if you want to send us an email or anybody wants to send us an email, uh, just send it at southernremedy at mpbonline.org or southernremedy.org. We have two websites, and we would love to get your call, uh, your email, and try to answer it. Let's go to Madison and Ann. Hey, Ann. I have a question. I'm a woman of a certain age who experiencing a little arthritis and I take Tylenol for arthritis. Just want to know what is the maximum so I'm not, uh, you know, hurting my liver by taking Tylenol daily. And also, um, would it be better to to take a prescription medicine or if the Tylenol manages it, still remain on the Tylenol? Well, I'm not exactly sure what the cause of your arthritis is. There are several different varieties and therefore several different treatments. Tylenol is a pretty good pain reliever for for mild to moderate pain, but it is not an anti-inflammatory. And arthritis is an inflammatory process. So you're kind of covering things up, but you're not necessarily getting to the root cause. Getting to your question, we see probably the most common medication for overdose in the United States is Tylenol. And for, I'm not sure what size you are, but for the average woman, 14 tablets in a handful is lethal. So, uh, and if you manage then to take, say, two Tylenol every two to four hours through the day, you're keeping up a significant level of Tylenol throughout the day. And while it's not the equivalent of a single dose, chronic Tylenol toxicity can be problematic. The, the people in Britain had a big issue with this. They tried to fix it two ways. The first time they saw a significant decrease in Tylenol overdoses is when they had the childproof cat. But then again, people could figure that out. The next thing is, and for overdoses, not uncommon for someone who's depressed, drink a little bit of alcohol, and then they would grab the bottle of Tylenol and take a handful. So what they decided to do is to put Tylenol in blister packs. And if you've ever used a blister pack, you know how frustrating they are to pop the pill out. Sure enough, they get about five or six out of them and say, forget it, I'm not going to do this. And so that was the most significant thing they could do. We sell it in 500 capsule bottles. So um, the bottom line, as Dr. Golly has said, let me underline this, is who you are and what you are drinking alcohol-wise and what your size is. So for osteoarthritis, the old age arthritis, it's not inflammatory. That's actually the first recommendation is Tylenol. And the number of grams that you should take per day, you have to know metrics. Uh, they're in milligrams. And Tylenol, double-strength Tylenol, 
uh, has a good bit of Tylenol in it. So whether you're talking about the single strength around 220 milligrams or the double strength, which is twice that much, we want to keep your dose below three, uh, three grams if at all possible. And in some cases lower than that. And if you're drinking alcohol, you have to be careful taking any of it. So when people are on regular uh, Tylenol daily, which we're putting a lot of people on for osteoarthritis, um, one or two tablets, two or three times a day, which is usually the maximum dose. We usually check your liver test after you've been on that a couple of weeks just to make sure it's not goofing up your liver. Uh, if you want to commit suicide, this is a bad way to commit suicide. It, it's a terrible drug. Uh, because uh, don't do that. First of all, don't commit suicide, but especially don't commit suicide with Tylenol because it's a slow death from liver failure, and it's pretty miserable. All, both of us have taken care of folks with this problem, and uh, so be careful with your, your Tylenol. You listen to Southern Remedy with toxicologists. Uh, emergency medicine internist Dr. Uh, Bob Galley here is my co-host today, and we're going next to Ridgeland, and we'll take your call uh, with open lines at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Hey, Robert. Hey, how you doing, sir? We're doing good. If you got migraines, uh, you're not doing as good as we are. Yeah, they're they're really my life pretty good. Um, they come out of nowhere, and all I can really do is go, you know up until I pass out. Mm. So what symptoms do you have besides nausea? Do you ha- Is your migraine on one side of your head or both sides of your head? It jumps back and forth to each temple. Like, I'll go on a year where it'll be on one side and another year it'll be on the other side. And it starts with the auras. It's a spot in my vision until it makes me completely almost blind. And then I'll it'll go away and that's when the nausea will ensue. But I'll that's all I can do is lay down by a toilet. So you have been on multiple medicines? Yes, sir. I got described uh, a few different, like four sets, and there was another one that I just got on, and nothing really seems to work. Um, I take Phenagrin, and that seems to help me go on and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So over, you know, get over the nausea and all, but sometimes I'll have them to where I'll, I'll wake up at 3 a.m., Yes, I'll have that just nausea, and it'll, I, it just ruins my life. Uh, do you know what your triggers time. are, uh, Robert? Do you know what your triggers are for your migraines? I really don't. It just comes out of nowhere. And I, I had an MRI done on my brain, and they said there's no abnormalities or anything. But I've noticed that I've taken my focus off thinking it was a brain problem. I've noticed a lot of the times I'll get a knot right under the base of my head on my neck. And that, that seems to trigger them, like just a lot of tension in my neck. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about migraines. And we've got somebody here who treats the very worst ones. And so let me set this up for him. The first approach to migraines is to make sure what you're having is a migraine because there are other types of headaches that respond differently that can simulate migraines. It seems that you clearly have migraines because you have what's called an aura before you have it, and it tends to be unilateral, and you're nauseated and have visual problems. So it sounds like you've got uh, a classic case of migraines. So our approach uh, to migraines is a maintenance program and a rescue program. And the rescue program is what you use when your maintenance 
uh, program doesn't work. And there are a lot of different maintenance drugs. I'll talk about those uh, if Dr. Galley uh, runs out of steam and doesn't get to that. But the, why don't you talk a little bit about migraines? And you see the worst-case scenario. You see these people are coming in every week with migraines. And the biggest problem from my perspective is using opiates to to treat them because you get hung up on them. But uh, what, what do you have to say? Well, for something like this, it's a chronic condition. We certainly don't want to recommend opiates, and that's a, a major issue, obviously, now. Um, one thing that – well, there are several different medications we can use intravenously. So if, uh, Robert, you're getting to the point where you're passing out, I'd recommend that you do come to the emergency department. We can give you some – very safe medications that really do a pretty good job of, of knocking these things out. The one actual, I hate to say good thing, is that you are having auras. And so there are medications that people will take if they recognize the aura before the pain of the migraine comes on that can really be quite effective. And a neurologist uh, who specializes in headache can certainly help you with that. Yeah, So and now migraine has gotten so... Um so common that most primary care physicians can get you started uh, once they've excluded anything uh, seriously underlying this. And so the the preventative medicines are a whole bunch of things, things like Topamax, which is the a seizure medicine that is the favorite thing that's quite effective. Sometimes some of the antidepressants, the SSRI class of antidepressants, can be taken. That's what I take for mine. I take sertraline, which is an antidepressant, and that helps uh, pretty much get rid of mine, except when I do something stupid, which I do frequently, which is drinking too much diet soda that will set me off like an A-bomb. Uh, and so you need to get to a physician, uh, probably an internal medicine specialist that has some advanced training in this, uh, or a neurologist, if you can afford it and get to one, to help you with this. And then there are the rescue medicines and they're the triptans, primarily the triptans. And there are a bunch of them and we can't predict which one's going to work. So we usually try multiple ones. So, so you're not getting, you're, you're not on the right regimen. Uh, uh, Robert, you need to get some additional medical help. There's no use suffering like this. We can fix 90% of these migraines and you just haven't seen the right doctor yet. So, Get hold of one and get that fixed. And if you can't find one, send us an email, and we'll hook you up with someone in your area. So thanks for your call. You're listening to Dr. Robert Galley and me, Dr. Rick, here on Southern Remedy. We're talking about all things considered today, and we'll take your call if you give us one at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Did you have another thing that you wanted to mention before we go on the next call? Yeah, I mean, you keep on repeating the phrase, and I just don't understand why the Thursday show on kids and teens isn't called Small Things Considered. <laughs> what can I say to that? But I can repeat our email address, southernremedy at mpbonline.org or southernremedy.org. You don't listen to uh, this program at uh, 6 a.m. every Sunday? Your clock is not You'd set. You'd be surprised how often it manages to be on Right. It drives you crazy, doesn't mm-hmm. it? All right. Well, let's go to Ridge. Uh, let's go to Jackson and George. Hey, George. Hi. How are you today? We're doing good. What's your problem? At night, while I'm asleep and I'm asleep only, my body begins to tremble. It's 
a high frequency tremble. Uh, may compare it to uh, your cell phone when you have it on vibrate. Mm-hmm. No pain associated with it, other than it would keep waking me up. It started about six months ago. It happens once or twice a week. My general practitioner says it may be low blood sugar, but I, I have a question with that because I really love and eat probably too much sugar. Okay, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. You're sound asleep, and all of a sudden your arm starts vibrating and wakes you up. Is that right? My whole body. Your whole body vibrates. Yes. So exactly what is the sensation that you become aware of when you wake up? Are your feet moving or anything like that? No, it's basically I noticed it seemingly around my chest, which thought first it, uh, I first thought it may have been a heart issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let me just tell you the most direct way. Do you want to tackle this or you want me to do it? The most direct way to get this sorted out uh, is, and you've already been to your primary care doctor and he's struggling, is to go directly to a sleep doctor because this is a sleep-triggered neurologic phenomena. And sleep doctors who run these sleep centers, you want to go to a board-certified sleep specialist, are either neurologists, uh, psychiatrist or, uh, internal medicine specialist, uh, who have had special training and been licensed, uh, to, to take care of sleep related problems. And there's all kinds of weird sleep disorders, you know, sleepwalking, uh, restless leg syndrome, a whole bunch of them. Uh, and it sounds like you have one of those weird disorders. So, if for whatever reason, and you're in the Jackson area, there are a lot of good sleep labs around, uh, and you don't need a referral for these. If you, For instance, if you call the sleep center at UMC or one of the private hospitals, that would be the way to get that sorted out. I, need- would, I would agree with that. And, and don't be surprised if uh, they don't come up with something right off the bat, if they ask you if this is happening on a regular basis to come in and sleep there a couple of nights. Right. And that way they'll be able to monitor you uh, with, with all kinds of uh, maneuvers to see if they can come down with a diagnosis. Right, and that, that ought to be a sortable, outable. You're listening to Southern Remedy at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, and we're going to Jackson and Bob. Hey, Bob. Hey, guys. How are you doing today? Good. Thank Good. you for your call. What's happening? Well, uh, I've been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and I've actually been treated uh, for a, a couple of years. Um, my question is, are there any new drugs um, or any new studies that have shown some improvement in diagnosing rheumatoid? Uh, well, since I'm a rheumatologist, I'll take that one. Uh, what is new in rheumatoid arthritis is primarily the treatment uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, is challenging to diagnose if you don't have certain laboratory tests that help you to do it. So it's a pattern recognition and frequently people that we diagnose with rheumatoid arthritis that don't have the serological tests like a rheumatoid factor and so-called CCP test positive to help steer us, uh, present with what looks like rheumatoid arthritis and sometimes end up with a second a different condition later. And what we are doing now is making the diagnosis of these inflammatory arthritic syndromes early 
and treating them very, very vigorously where they just stop, and we, we don't wait to see what they're going to morph into. So the new treatments are the biologics, and these are things like Humira and Embril and many, many more. And just like uh, migraine medicines, we frequently don't know which one of these will work in a given patient and have to try more than one. And there's a new biologic coming out almost every month. So a lot of hope for people with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and I, so far as diagnostic testing, uh, no, there's nothing new there. It's still a clinical diagnosis. We look at hand films, looking for erosions. We look at laboratory tests. We listen to the patient. Uh, there are certain physical findings on the examination. Uh, a rheumatoid hand looks different from an osteoarthritic hand, and that's the way the diagnosis is made. I hope that helps, Bob. And if you need more, we have uh, some patient information sheet that covers this whole deal that we can send you at southernremedy.mpbonline.org. And thank you for that call. Did I miss anything? I think you got that covered. All right. Why don't you take Donna's call from Magnolia? Hey, Donna. Hello. You got the right doctor to ask this question for okay great what is it um how long did you have to take opiates and what kind before they start injuring your body good question so what is an opiate so opiate is uh, derived from the poppy plant. Um, that's the natural form. We make an awful lot of synthetics uh, as a re- uh, subsequent to that. And there are any numbers of them that are available. The difficulty that... Physicians... So watch your name somewhere. They'll know what they so are. So the stuff that most people are con- know about originally was Tylenol number 3, which is Tylenol with codeine. But Percocet and Vicodin are the classic ones now, which people can no longer afford, and so they're now using heroin, and they're shooting heroin, and that certainly is one. And as well, then there's fentanyl, which is really much stronger and is now being mixed with heroin and causing a lot of deaths. So how long can you everyone's take it without a, getting hung up? Everyone's a little bit different when it comes to this. You could take one prescription's worth and be totally hooked, um, and after that, you're completely dependent upon them. Yeah, I've and, seen patients that take one dose of these things, mm-hmm. and it hits their pleasure center for some yep. reason, and they're hooked. That's exactly right. And, that's unusual. And it, That's unusual, but those are the ones that are difficult. In fact, there was just a report on TV last night about how just going to the dentist and have kids getting their wisdom teeth taken out get started when they're young. Oh, goodness. Uh, Zika, let, update us on that. So Zika now, CDC is all over this, and unfortunately, there's a problem with pregnant women for their fetuses. There are 234 women in the United States that are pregnant that have are positive for Zika, and three children have been born with microcephaly. Whoa. So use that uh, mosquito repellent. Thanks for listening to Southern Remedy, and a special thanks to our special guest, Dr. Robert Galley, professor of emergency medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back same time, same place next week uh, on Southern Remedy. Next, it's NPR's Here and Now on MPB Think Radio. From all of us at Southern Remedy, this is Dr. Rick. Thanks for listening.
This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue Mobile app. More at bcbsms.com. We're going to be under high pressure as we go through this afternoon and in Meridian. Blue sky, a few scattered high clouds, and there's not a whisper of wind out there right now. Unfortunately, that's going to be... 